You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, David and worship team. Good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church. If it's your first time, extend to you a special welcome, even though my voice is usually strange, it's not usually this strange. Uh, it's good to have you here this morning. It's good to be home and in church. I had planned to preach last week's text, um, or this text that we're preaching this morning last Sunday, uh, but just was not well at all uh, enough to preach. And it's a really strange place to be struck. You'll see what I mean when we get to the text. Thanks to Ricky, David, Jeff for filling the pulpit so admirably the last three weeks. It was beautifully done. And we listened in Switzerland, we listened in France, and we listened in Fuqua Varina. Now, which of those three does not belong? It's one of those. Uh, one of those. Back to the real world for all of us uh, today. We're praying for those who returned from TVR this past week that are sick of several are sick and several families out today. I love the shirts this, this year at camp. So, so glad that uh, those of you who went to camp are able to make it today, that you had such a good week. It's always a good week in Plumtree, North, North Carolina. Well, let me ask you, what would you say about the role that the church plays in your life? Some would understandably think this is the wrong question and that a better question might be one that I asked a new friend uh, that I met. It's an old friend of Allison's, a new friend, though, for me, uh, who is from Sweden. When I asked him, how seriously do you take your faith? Now, this gentleman had already talked about his role and his wife's role in the church, and I knew a little bit about their past, so I was not at all surprised, in fact, anticipated that he would say what he did when he said, I take my faith very seriously, which is not an easy thing to do in Europe, by the way, and it's not an easy thing to do in America outside of the Southeast. It's really not that easy here anymore. But there were several conversations that Alice and I had uh, with both Americans and Europeans about faith and church and Jesus on the trip. And some of those conversations were with people who longed for a deeper relationship with Christ, but they were stuck. And we were able to encourage them to find a local body of believers in which their faith and personal relationship with Jesus could be nurtured in one case, we've been able to follow up and help someone find a couple of churches, make a few suggestions in our new friend's area. On the other hand, we heard a lot of complaining about the church. Only in a few cases did people say they would no longer attend church because of how badly leadership or other members had hurt them. But there were surely some, and you've encountered a lot of those people, haven't you? A lot of people who say, I'll never go to church again. I've been hurt too badly. What a shame. Church life ought to point people to Christ, ought to bring them closer to the Lord, not drive them away. 
In this morning's text, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13, the Apostle Paul admonished the church for living in such a way that the world indeed took notice and found the church wanting. There was an open and grievous sexual sin being celebrated (coughs) in Corinth church. A sin that at the time was even unacceptable in what was one of the most debauched cities in one of the most decadent empires in the history of civilized nations. Now think about this. So lest you think as we read that the Apostle Paul was being harsh and judgmental in tone, it was less, it was far less than Cicero and Gaius and other ancients had said about the nature of the sin in question. For a bit of context, the arrogant and competitive spirit that Paul condoned in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians is now revealed in in chapter 5 as an acceptance of sin in the church that caused many outside the church to say, yes, and you call yourself what? Christians? I suppose that's what you get when you worship a crucified Messiah. Throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul was saying in so many words, believers should do nothing to obscure the cross. The message of Christ and him crucified is enough of an offense to the world. (coughs) And Paul is not backing away from that message one bit, as we're going to see. His point, let the cross be the offense not your sinful behavior. Now look, when he's writing to the Galatians, he's dealing with an opposite problem. He's saying, don't let your legalistic views get in the way of the cross. Here he's saying, don't let your sinful ways get in the way of the cross. When you think about it, the gospel is really a delicate balance. But you know, believers ought to be able to find that balance easily. And slide right in because we have the word, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Father's sovereign plan, good plan, and we have a crucified Savior to look to. There is much more to say. We'll begin by reading our text, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. By the way, this is sexual immorality. This word, porneia, covers all kinds of sexual immorality. We'll talk about it more specifically when we get to the latter half of 1 Corinthians 6 and then chapter 7. It's a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. He's living with his stepmother. And you are arrogant. He didn't say ignorant. He said you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, 
I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the, of the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And even though that's a harsh word. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you be seated? I should say it's a direct word, not a harsh word. It's a very loving word. The nature of the sin that Paul addresses in the latter half of 1 Corinthians 6, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, and then in chapter 7, because of the nature of that sin, and... Since so many of our younger children will be with us in the service throughout the month of August, I'll be jumping ahead uh, to chapter 8 in two weeks. Next week, first part of chapter 6. And you can do this in 1 Corinthians. We can go ahead a little bit, and then we can come back. I want to wait till the students are back anyway. Uh, and then after a few special weekends in September, I'll get back to 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. In prayerfully wrestling with today's text, it seemed best to make eight statements about the text, which could have been 18 statements about the text. I hope the questions that might have arisen in your mind from the reading of the text (coughs) will be addressed, if not fully answered along the way, although it may not be necessarily in the order that you might expect. This list is a collection of theological conclusions that we draw from 1 Corinthians 5 of application and the one it seemed I the one at which I seem to be particularly adept observations and statements of the obvious. So let's begin with one of those. First, Paul's complaint was more against the church than it was against the individual who was the offending sinner. This past November, uh, in the book of Titus, New Testament book of of Titus, we encountered a topic 
of church discipline for those who stir up dissension in the church. And took time at that point to examine most of what the New Testament has to say about church discipline. Because it's not as clear cut as we might like it to be A, B, C, D, E, F, G in one particular place. It's kind of scattered around. And so we, we must do that. The Lord intended for us to look at it in that way. The pattern given by Jesus in Matthew 18 and followed in Titus 3 is to warn once, warn again, and then take decisive action. 1 Corinthians 5 has a different trajectory. trajectory. Apparently, the one who was living in sin should have known better and had long ago crossed lines that had been established by church leaders. Perhaps uh, some in the church, in fact, you just have to get this sense from reading the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Um, which, by the way, chapter 4 is a tough one to come in and preach on on, on its own. And so, Ricky, thank you very much. You did a great job with that. And I thought as, I, as you were preaching, man, I'm glad that's you instead of me I'm preaching that text. Did an excellent job with that. But, but the pattern that's been established is that there was division within the church. And so this group followed this person, this group followed that person. So this group and the people at the, that they were following were not necessarily even there in the church. Paul and Peter and Apollos was off somewhere uh, as we'll find out in chapter 16, not in Corinth, but these groups held sway. And one of the groups had apparently decided, well, we'll just show how gracious our God is. You can trust Jesus. He died for your sins and you can do anything that you want to do. Others were very opposed to this man living in the way that he had lived, that he was living. So, Either way, the perception in the city was that the church prided itself on its acceptance of behavior that the world condemned. That was hard to do. Just think of how hard it would be to do that in our world today. But that's what they were doing. In verse 2, Paul said, you are arrogant, or as some of your translations say, you are puffed up. Their blindness to the gravity of the sin being tolerated by the community sprang from the same root issue that caused the divisions in the church addressed in the first four chapters. Hubris. Raw pride. Although Paul did not say it in so many words, His message was clear. Look, this is what happens when you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. When you are convinced that you have all the answers to all the questions of life, especially those in the religious realm, at some point you're going to get off the rails. We're meant to be dependent on God. We should have seen this coming when Paul stated in the chapter one and two, chapters one and two, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, <clears throat> though it is the wisdom of God to those who are being saved. Paul had written in chapter one that it pleased God for none to be able 
to find him through worldly wisdom. In other words, we cannot discover God through our own insight. But rather, God must come to us if we are to know him and be saved, which he did so beautifully at the cross of Christ. When Paul reprimanded the Corinthians for trying to impress the philosophers and rhetoricians in Corinth with their knowledge and debate skills, he did so because he knew the fruit of such efforts would lead to distorted thinking, which is one of the reasons Paul felt compelled to remind the Corinthians of the truth of our second point. The New Testament church is defined more by the Old Testament community of Israel than by the current culture. And didn't David Calvert remind us that a couple of weeks ago with the blessing blessing in 2 Corinthians 1 being pointed out to be a synagogue blessing? In using the language of Passover and, and, and leaven, which represented both redemption and sin to the Israelites, Paul did nothing less than identify the church as the covenant people of God. One of the reasons for the rapid spread of the gospel in the first century was that so many Greeks and Romans and those around the Roman Empire looked to the synagogue as an island of stability and morality in a decadent, and morally lax world. So they had already come into the synagogue at great cost to the males, by the way. The nation of Israel was a holy nation that had been called out of the world to represent the one true God. The sexual sin that Paul referenced in our text was condemned in Leviticus 18 and also in Deuteronomy. It, it, it's significant for us because the church is the fulfillment of God's plan to bless all nations, not a replacement for the nation of Israel. God's not done with Israel, but, but we are not a whole new thing. We're a fulfillment of what God was doing all along. We cannot fulfill our responsibility to represent the Lord if our desire is to look as much like the world as possible so that people will see we are just like they are, except that we have Jesus. Who, by the way, will let you live any way you want? But no. I'm going to bring this up later. It's not in the notes, but it just happened last night. Allison and I watched a, 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 a live stream event uh, that was a celebration of Keith Green's life and ministry, which continually pointed to the Lord because that's what Keith Green, if you're young, like I say, I'll bring this up in several, several more weeks when we get into 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. Um. Melody Green, uh, who wrote, There is a Redeemer, the one that we sing. She wrote that. Keith sang it, but she wrote it. Uh, was sharing, and <clears throat> she said at one point, you know, 
Uh, it's not easy to live for the Lord today. It's not easy to be identified with Jesus. And pe- people are just ashamed of being a Christian. And they're like, well, we don't hate that group. Or we don't, we love that. And they're just ashamed. And, and Christ will be ashamed of us at his coming. She said it plainly. Look, what do we have to offer to the world if we don't offer them the whole truth? What do we have? If we're not willing to say God says that this is sin, especially in the church. And you heard him say, outside the church, what am I? God will take care of those. But when someone asks you, how do you feel about this? If God makes it clear, you better be clear. There's a lot at stake. We absolutely cannot live any way that we desire, but that's a good thing. (laughs) We are, as 1 Peter 2, 9 and tells us, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is our identity. God's dearly loved and holy people who have been called into his marvelous light. Third, gospel is the message of the New Testament church, not the law. Just because we're more associated with Israel than we are with the culture does not mean that we live under the law. To live under the law (coughs) is to seek to justify yourself by the law or by your obedience to the law. So if I can just be good enough, then I'll be okay with God. That's no. The whole point of one of the points, not the whole point, but one of the primary points of the law was to show us we cannot be good enough. We needed someone to be our savior. In fact, we needed someone to take the punishment that the law demands of those who fail to keep it. That's what Jesus did. Paul said in verse 7 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. There's no question in 1 Corinthians or in any of Paul's letters that our only hope of salvation is to acknowledge that Jesus died in our place. But repentance is part of the equation. It's not just, I can just believe When we come to the Lord, we acknowledge our sin before him, even as we put our trust in Jesus' death as a substitution and payment for our sins. We do not, though, enter a contract with God where it says, okay, I believe it, you did it, so I'll sign on the dotted line, you've signed on the dotted line, and now I'm saved and I can live as I please. I can't, nor am I free to Interpret scripture according to cultural sensibilities. 
We are covenant people. We live as representatives of the one true God who sent his son to die for our sins and who guides his people by his Holy Spirit, primarily through instruction in Scripture. One of the truths that the Lord wants us to understand is the subject of our fourth point. The integrity of the gospel is jeopardized when open and arrogant sin is tolerated within the community. Paul states as much when he accuses the church of a level of tolerance that exceeds the tolerance of the world. If we believe God is sovereign, then we know that his will is being accomplished regardless of what the circumstances might imply or indicate. We believe that he will receive the glory he is due. Even so, the Lord holds us accountable. He expects his people to live by his instructions and to be mindful of those who are on the outside of the church looking in. We have, And this is going to come up again and again in 1 Corinthians. Hey, people are watching. You need to be careful about how you're living. The church is to be a light in a dark world and to be sought or a preservative in the world. We become a blessing to the world not through crusades and posting on social media, but by living lovingly and holy within the community. Several years ago, I heard Richard Hayes from Duke Divinity School uh, give excellent lectures on the Trinity, the doctrine which in many ways uh, is the foundation for all other doctrines in Scripture, which is why, you know, when Jewish people or Muslims like to say something like, don't we all worship the same God? And the answer that you've heard me give many times is, if his name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yes, we do. If his name is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we don't worship the same God. Anyway, when writing about this text in 1 Corinthians 5, Richard Hayes had this to say, quote, We have somehow deluded ourselves into believing that the caring thing to do is to be infinitely non-judgmental and inclusive. Now, Duke, you might know, is not a bastion of conservative scholars. There are some great ones there, really great ones at Duke. This is quite simply, Hayes says, a demonic lie. For it allows terrible, cancerous abuses to continue unchecked in the community. Do you not know that a little cancer corrupts the whole body? Paraphrase of verse in 1 Corinthians 5. Surgery is necessary. Clean out the cancer <coughs> that the body may be whole. Close quote. A little leaven will permeate the entire loaf of bread. Cut out the leaven from the old loaf and enter a celebration of the bread of sincerity and truth so that the community may flourish. Fifth, though Paul 
put his apostolic authority behind the decision to excommunicate the offending member. The responsibility to carry out the decision was left to the church. In 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of a disciplinary matter that was handled properly. The discipline led to repentance by the offending member, which is always the goal. It is doubtful that the sin referenced in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 referred to this gentleman uh, who is identified in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Once again, Dr. Calvert pointed out a few weeks ago, several letters were exchanged between Paul and the Corinthians, so we're not sure of the connection. Even so... 2 Corinthians 2 informs us that the majority of the congregation agreed that one of its members needed to be censored. In other words, it was a congregational decision, not a leadership decision, although certainly in cases such as this, the leaders would bring the church together and then let the church decide. Any way you cut it, the whole church is given the responsibility to maintain the purity of the, church, the purity of the community and the integrity of the gospel. Let me say that church discipline is never something we should enter with joy or eagerness, but with sorrow and heaviness while remembering our own propensity towards sin. And if you want to really be tempted with sin, condemn it in a very judgmental way from your heart. You may be, you may find yourself doing the very thing that you have so quickly and readily condemned in others. Really, this is about the sin and the attitude behind the sin. But from our part, we got to be so careful. Not to be ones who just put people down on the basis of political views. Because really that's often what it's about. It always goes there somehow. The greatest temptation is to self-righteousness. The sin that... Jesus condemned most readily. The church should have enough spiritually minded men and women in their midst to help believers make distinctions when necessary. And didn't we already cover that in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians? And won't we cover it next week? In 1 Corinthians 6 when we talk about believers bringing lawsuits against other believers. Yes, indeed. Sixth. While the church is required to address active participants of the community who are living in unrepentant sin, our responsibility for unbelievers' behavior is, well, it's limited at best. I've thought about this a whole lot for several weeks. Man, I've been in this text for a long time. thought about this a whole lot. with our desires for our nation to live righteously, which democracy makes it difficult to know what the place is. Tonight will be a very important night. Need to be here at 6 o'clock. 
Whether you agree with everything or not, you need to be here. Think about these things. Here is my best understanding of church discipline. First, it's reserved for active members of the local church community. Well, now what about those who have not officially joined the church? While it would be far better for all who consider a church to be their home church to join that church, if someone is an active participant in church life, at the very least the decision can be made to withhold the bread and wine of fellowship at the table at the Lord's Supper from them. But you know what? This wouldn't be an elder's decision. This would be an entire church community decision. Tricky business. It's important business, though. Second, when someone disassociates himself or herself from church, I don't see in the New Testament where we are responsible as believers to go after them and then vote to excommunicate. Now, I know some churches feel strongly that if someone used to be a member and quit because of sin, we should publicly rebuke that one. We should seek to encourage them to repent and return. But if they say, no, I'm out of here, then we're not necessarily responsible to go after them, although I wouldn't stand in the way of that decision if the church made it. If that sounds like a cop-out, remember the tenor of the, Old, of the New Testament. To remove yourself or to be removed from the church of God is to find yourself apart from Christ. That's the tenor of the whole New Testament. That's especially tough for recovering Catholics to hear, but it's, it's the tenor of it. Once you accept certain things, man, you see it everywhere. In the New Testament. So in other words, this is serious business. This kind of sin, this kind of open and arrogant sin, and that's what it can be. That's one of those times where you have to bring a person who is living in open sin and saying, no, you're not going to tell me what I can do or not do. And the church must make the painful decision. And we've done that. Third, church discipline should be rare. Look, the New Testament has way more to say about forgiving one another and bearing with one another and getting along with one another than it does about church discipline. To my knowledge, it's only happened twice in Grace Community Churches, 28, <coughs> excuse me, 28 years of existence. And as of tomorrow, I've been here for 24 of those. Once before and once after I came. As for the sins of unbelievers who don't belong to the church, Paul said, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? God will judge them. Those who are inside the church, that is your responsibility. Next point. Three key purposes of church discipline are the purity of the church, the restoration of the one who is disciplined, and God's glory. If the first two are taken care of, Number three is going to happen. And number three is going to happen regardless. But God wants us to participate in his glory. This point doesn't really need explanation. Except to mention that when Paul said the church is to 
Give the wayward one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit might be saved in the end. He most likely was saying, let him live according to the world's standards, according to the, what the world thinks is best. He's tasted of the goodness of God and likely he will find sooner or later that living any way he wants is not commensurate with a relationship with God, nor is it a sustainable way of living, certainly not a flourishing. The last point, give thanks to God that he does not allow us to live in any way we desire and give thanks to God that he designed the church to help believers fulfill his call for personal holiness in their lives. I think I missed this somewhere and I want to make sure to get it in. Um, there's no indication. Paul did not bring up um, what the church's responsibility was toward this member, most likely because she was not a member or, or, or toward the woman, most likely because she was not a member of the church. And so he said, you concentrate on the ones who live among you as members, as one who, as a one, one who calls himself or herself brother or sister. And by the way, in Philippians, he, he, he gently rebuked Yodi and Syntyche, so who were both women. So it's not that Paul was just chauvinistic and saying, oh, we don't worry about the women. We No, he very much did. But in that case, it must have been the, the case. So I missed that as we were going along and I thought it was important enough to bring up. Everyone has standards, whether Christian or not. Everyone, right? We all make sacrifice to be part of any community. Whether that is a nuclear family or a place of work or a group addressing climate change or a church. I'm grateful to be in a loving community in which I am held accountable for my attitudes as well as my actions. I'm far from being perfect on either front, but you love me well. And help me to stay focused and on the path that leads to eternal life. Don't think of eternal life as a transaction we took care of when we got saved. No, we're on the path that leads to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we are not called to arrogance or a spirit that exalts itself above those who do not know the Lord as we do. We remember that if God had not revealed himself to us, there's no way we would be believers or a part of a community. There's nothing in our relationship with the Lord about which we can brag. And that's a good thing. Let us always approach the Lord with a spirit of humility and gratitude. Let us love and forgive one another as we build ourselves up in the love of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4. In an unsteady world where many are, are 
fearful of losing their place in their own community with one misspoken word or with one careless moment or a wayward deed. And, and you think about the grace and the mercy and the beauty of church discipline where this process is given and, and people gather around and say, you can't, you just can't live like that. Please repent. Give your heart to the Lord. Let us live before the world as the covenant people of God, presenting a model of love and reason and commitment to truth in a world that is constantly changing. Historians and sociologists identify the internet as one of the top three to five advances in the history of the world. Now think about that. Fire, combustible engines, writing, printing press. But the internet changed everything and a lot of you can't even fathom life without the internet, what it must have been like before that. We're so used to change that we forget how quickly everything changes. But our God never changes. The gospel never changes. Truth never changes. It's not up for debate. Our understanding grows. It does. We talk about that especially when we get to 1 Corinthians 7, divorce and remarriage. But God's expectations for his people to be holy and his beautiful mercy and grace in holding us to that standard and giving us the community that helps us achieve what he's required. It's amazing. John 3.16 never changes. That's the message that we must show and tell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I'm just standing here wondering why I was so drawn to this verse. And I think it's because everything always comes back to the simple foundational truth. God loves us. If we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life, but we'll also be very different. We'll be his people on this world, in this world, living to bring him glory. Let's pray. Father, um, we are humbled <coughs> before you. And even uh, in a text that is hard to receive, especially in light of our world today, we're so busy trying to be non judgmental that we don't even realize how far the world has gone beyond us in that. 
Lord, may we judge the things that ought to be judged, and that is the spiritual expectations that you have laid out for us in your word. May we commit this morning afresh and anew to holiness, to walking in our identity as followers of Christ, as one with Christ, led by the Holy Spirit according to the Father's plan. We love you. We need you. And we pray that you would bring us to repentance where we need to repent. And that you would envelop us in your love. And may we live as a light in a dark place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.